Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the Ambasic Podcast, with a mini-episode on sepsis definitions. Today I just published the sepsis update, sepsis 3.0 if you will. There are lots of changes with the new sepsis guidelines, so that episode reviews them all. One of the changes is that we now have eliminated the classification of severe sepsis. My view, which some may or may not agree with, is that the new guidelines also rely a lot more on clinician judgment to recognize sepsis without specifically spelling out how to recognize it. I think the old guidelines actually had a good framework on how to recognize septic patients with a progression from SERS to sepsis to severe sepsis to septic shock. In addition, a lot of our current sepsis screening tools are based on SERS criteria, so even though SERS can be very nonspecific for sick patients, I think it's the first step in recognizing possible sepsis. In order to help learners understand how to recognize sepsis, I've republished a section from the first sepsis podcast I did all the way back in February 2012. This section only talks about how to recognize sepsis using the SERS criteria and the stepwise progression from SERS all the way up to septic shock. To be clear, I'm certainly not saying that our patients follow this stepwise progression, just that it's a convenient way to teach how to recognize sepsis. Maybe you'll find this useful, maybe not. I'll let you be the judge of that. So here's a republication of the old sepsis guidelines on how to recognize sepsis. So to start things off, first we have to talk about a few definitions and what they mean. I'm sure that we all have heard of the SERS criteria and the term sepsis and septic shock, but let's go through these terms and talk about how they fit into the big picture. The first thing to talk about are the criteria for systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SERS. These are a set of criteria that can suggest that the patient may be having a major response to an infection. However, just because the patient meets SERS criteria doesn't necessarily mean that they have an infection, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So the SERS criteria are white blood cell count less than 4 or greater than 12, temperature less than 36 degrees Celsius or greater than 38 degrees Celsius, so for Fahrenheit that's less than 96.8 degrees and greater than 100.4 degrees, a respiratory rate greater than 22 or a PaCO2 less than 30, and a heart rate greater than 90. So let's go over those one more time. The four SERS criteria are white blood cell count less than 4 or greater than 12, temperature less than 36 degrees Celsius or greater than 38 degrees Celsius, so in Fahrenheit that's less than 96.8 and greater than 100.4, respiratory rate greater than 22 or PaCO2 less than 30, and a heart rate greater than 90. So I admit it's a pain to remember all those numbers thrown in there, so here's how I simplify it. It's a white count that's high or low, a temperature that's high or low, a high respiratory rate, and a high heart rate. If you can remember the individual numbers, that's great, but these criteria are easily something that you can write down somewhere for future reference and look up as you need them. After you've been doing this a while, recognizing SERS and sepsis becomes easy. You'll know it when you see it. We are looking for a patient to have at least two of the four SERS criteria in order to diagnose them with sepsis. So before we go any further and talk about sepsis, Let's talk about how they use the SERS criteria correctly. When I went through those criteria, the one thing that may have popped into your mind is, wow, these are pretty nonspecific signs. And that is the truth. They're meant to be a screening tool to help identify patients who may have serious infections, but you don't want to apply them to every ankle sprain that you see. For example, let's say that you come into the ED with something painful like a bad ankle fracture or shoulder dislocation. If you look at the person's triage vital signs, They may have a heart rate over 90, and they may have a respiratory rate over 22, 
Heck, you may even have a WPC count over 12 from the pain response, and you may have a temp of 100.6 because it's hot outside. So are we going to admit every ankle fracture to the MICU just because they have 4 out of 4 surge criteria? Of course not. The surge criteria are meant to be used as a screening tool to help us identify patients who may have serious underlying infections, but it's not something that you want to apply to every person who walks through the doors of the ED. The way to use this correctly is to say that you should screen for SIRS criteria in every patient whom you think has an infection. So that brings us to our next definition, sepsis. Sepsis is defined as two out of four SIRS criteria with a known or suspected source of infection. Once again, let's talk about how to correctly define sepsis. Let's say that you have a patient who is feeling awful from a bona fide strep pharyngitis. There are no concerning findings to suggest an abscess, epiglottitis, or an airway obstruction, and the patient doesn't look toxic. This is run-of-the-mill strep pharyngitis. So this patient probably has a temperature over 38 degrees Celsius, a heart rate over 90, and probably has a high white blood cell count and respiratory rate. So are we going to put in a central line in this patient and admit them to the MICU? I mean, he's septic, right? So while this patient technically has sepsis because he has at least two out of the four SIRS criteria and has a source of infection, he doesn't meet criteria for severe sepsis. Now, for a less extreme example, let's say that you have a young female with UTI, back pain, and fever. She has pyelonephritis, but she looks non-toxic, has near-normal vital signs, and can get close follow-up. This patient also meets the definition for sepsis as well, but we don't put every female with pyelonephritis in the MICU either. So how do we make the decision about who needs more aggressive care for their sepsis? When we talk about doing the sepsis protocol in the ED, we are talking about patients with severe sepsis. These are patients who are a lot sicker than the person with the strep pharyngitis, and their mortality rates are high, usually 40% coming through the door. So we need to be on the lookout for severe sepsis, and we need to know how to define it. So to have severe sepsis, you need to have two out of four SIRS criteria, a known or suspected source of infection, and at least one indication of end-organ damage. So here are the end criteria for end-organ damage. The first criteria is a systolic blood pressure that is less than 90 after two liters of IV normal saline, or a systolic blood pressure that is 40 points below the patient's known baseline. We'll talk about this in a second. Second criteria is a lactate greater than 4. Third criteria is an ultramental status. Fourth criteria is renal failure. And the fifth criteria is hyperglycemia, in a patient who's not diabetic. So let's go through that one more time, and we'll talk about each one individually. The first criteria is a systolic BP less than 90 after two liters of IV normal saline. The caveat to this is that if the patient is 40 points or more below their usual baseline blood pressure, that counts too. So this may be a patient who has difficulty to control blood pressure all the time. Let's say that you look back on their clinic notes and see that despite medications, they always show up to their appointments with a BP of 170 or 180 systolic. So if they now have a BP in the ED and you think they're septic, then their systolic blood pressure of 120 is not normal for them, even though it's above the threshold of 90. So be on the lookout for these patients. The next criteria is the lactate measurement. Lactate is a byproduct of anaerobic metabolism, and it indicates global tissue hypoperfusion. An elevated lactate can mean that the patient is not perfusing their tissues well enough because of the sepsis. Now, just about any stressor can cause a rise in lactate. Hypoxia from a pulmonary embolism can raise your lactate, or you could be having cardiogenic shock from a myocardial infarction that is causing your lactate to rise. One study showed that if you have a person sprint 400 meters and then draw a VBG, 
their pH will be 7.0, and their lactate can be 10 or 15, all because your body was using anaerobic metabolism for that 400 meter split. The bottom line is this. In the right setting, lactate can be a useful tool to screen for patients who are sicker than they first appear. It can also be used to guide your resuscitation. If the patient starts with a lactate of 5, and two hours into your resuscitation, they have a lactate of 3, then you know you're doing something right. However, if the patient's lactate goes from 5 to 7 in that same two-hour period, then you should consider that you may need to do something different. Finally, we can lump together altered mental status, renal failure, or new-onset hyperglycemia into the category of end-organ damage. These are signs that the patient isn't sufficiently perfusing their vital organs, so they count the same as a person with hypotension after IV fluids or a high lactate. So going over those things one more time, uh, signs of end-organ damage are any one of these uh, five things. A systolic blood pressure is less than 90 after two liters of IV normal saline, or a systolic blood pressure that is 40 points or more below the patient's known baseline, a lactate greater than 4, altered mental status, renal failure, or hyperglycemia in a patient who is not diabetic. Now, there's one more step above severe sepsis, and that's septic shock. Septic shock is defined as severe sepsis that requires vasopressors to maintain an adequate blood pressure. Hey everybody, this is Steve, and we're back in the present day now. I hope that review was helpful in understanding the recognition of septic patients in the emergency department. Before we go, I'd like to mention our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. They have great review articles on a wide variety of topics, including sepsis in the ED. Residents can get free access and attendees can get a discount by following the link at embasic.org or going to ebmedicine.net slash embasic. All right, that's it for now. Steve Carroll, EMBasic, signing off.